1: Hello and welcome to 4th Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Turrisiar in Sydney, on Gadigal lands of the Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. In this edition, we have the first part of a series called Black Stories Matter. The series is an important look at how the media has covered Aboriginal stories over the last 45 years, And asks the important question, has our media failed to represent Aboriginal people fairly? And is our media silencing Aboriginal voices? Our talk in this edition is titled, Does the Media Fail Aboriginal Political Aspirations? Our speakers are Professor Stan Grant from Charles Sturt University. He's a former ABC Globe Affairs and Indigenous Affairs Analyst. And Professor Heidi Norman, Director of UTS Indigenous Lands and Justice Research Hub. And our Chair... Professor Devlina Gush is from the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at UTS.
2: I will start by asking Heidi to talk about that amazing book. Please, if you could start off.
0: Thanks, Devlina. As you know, this is a first in a series of four where we, over the four seminars, will we'll be bringing a critical lens to how the media represents Aboriginal political aspirations. As Susan framed this discussion, we and Amy Thomas, who worked with me on the book, as we thought about this seminar series, one of the critical points that emerges is that Black Lives Matters, or as this we've kind of reframed this slightly to think about Black Stories Matters, Black Lives Matters movement, which is in part a response to state-sanctioned murderous violence in the US. And then as that movement flows, has flowed across the globe with some local uptake and local reshaping, the position there is the role of of the state in sanctioned violence. And so we are pivoting this slightly because I think the Black Lives Matters movement has gained great traction, even though it's been an issue, an identified issue, and there's been organisation for more than a decade in Australia, at least for many decades in response to Black deaths in custody, say... But what the BLM movement in gaining traction now highlights critical points about the racial, cultural, ethnic, social and economic stratification in settler societies. In our emphasis here and picking up the research that we've recently undertaken is to think about how the fourth estate, what the role of the media is in telling stories about Aboriginal political aspirations and more broadly Aboriginal representation the critical role of the media in enabling or perhaps even limiting how stories of the nation, stories of Aboriginal lives are understood, are are spoken to policy, spoken to government and even spoken back to ourselves. Through this series, we want to make an intervention, we want to put out some challenges to the media and um, indeed to policy officers and and um, to all of us to think about, you know, what are these stories? How can they be told differently? The book, it came out earlier this year. The title is Doesn't Media Fail Aboriginal Political Aspirations? And in this work, we undertook a fairly clinical study of 45 years of newsprint media coverage of what we identified as 11 key moments. So we started in 1972 with the Larrakia petition in Darwin and the case studies that concluded with the Uluru Statement from the Heart in 2017. The methodology we brought to this was to look at 10 newsprint articles. So we can find our study to newsprint articles within the day before or the days after these particular moments. And what our thinking here was that We confined our study to print media because that allowed a consistent methodology across each of the case studies. Um, We brought together a a team of mostly Aboriginal scholars and practitioners, and we had advisors on board like Professor Andrew Jakubowicz, who's worked in the field of racism in the media over many decades, some young scholars, practitioners, um, journalists working in the field. This study was funded by the New South Wales Department of Aboriginal Affairs and the argument that they made in supporting this research is that their objective is to inform broader policy transformations. The policy transformation that Aboriginal Affairs in New South Wales have announced is to fundamentally change the relationship between the government and Aboriginal peoples, from one that began as unilateral to one of bilateralism or multilateralism. Sounds a bit wordy, but we might also think about how this relationship between Aboriginal people and government is undergoing some transitional shift that Takes a form in Victoria through a treaty. There's treaty conversations unfolding in Queensland and the Northern Territory. That's how this work fits within that broader agenda, kind of has a subtle import, if you like. And it's thinking if big change is set to be made, how is that change possible? And how are the stories that the media tell about Aboriginal political aspirations enabled or limited? And if there is big structural change to be made, how can we ensure the media is part of this story and able to comprehend this big change? And part of our argument that we've developed in the work is that the media convey to the wider society narratives that explain the daily interactions between Aboriginal people and government. And while no wave of reportage can be said to be solely responsible for policy outcomes, the environment within which policy decisions are made and implemented is unavoidably influenced by media reportage. Therefore, these stories, discourses and narratives work to either constrain or facilitate the realisation of Aboriginal political aspirations. What we argued in the work is that a sensitive appreciation of Aboriginal standpoints in agreement-making is necessarily influenced by public discourses and deeper narratives about Aboriginal agency. These narratives are created, circulated and negotiated in great part through the mass media and more recently through social media. Yet what we found in this work, and as journalist Jeff McMullen has flagged, is a matrix of negativity and a deeply troubling fatalism often characterises the discussion of Aboriginal political aspirations. We're saying that breaking through these boundaries requires a proactive consideration of how media reporting understands, interprets and communicates Aboriginal agency and self-determination back at Aboriginal people and outwardly to government and other stakeholders. Um, As I mentioned, we brought together a team of people. We looked at 11 case studies. We had a very kind of clinical approach that was shared across all of the case studies Out of these case studies, we found um, some pretty troubling media failures, and I think it's likely that you might have anticipated that from the title. What we want to tease out is what these failings look like and to tease out some key themes. And it's not so much trying to do um, an expose or an interrogation of individual journalists. It's about zooming out and thinking about the bigger Narratives that inform the reporting of Aboriginal political aspirations. So it's not about picking off journalists or even in thinking about the ideological agenda that particular mastheads pursue, although that cannot be separated out from our discussion. So this isn't a sort of gotcha moment. What we want to do is think about what are these narratives and how have they been reproduced over this 45-year period? So we've got three key questions that we ask. We ask, how does the media understand and represent Aboriginal agency? To what extent have the Australian media failed in communicating the aspirations of the Aboriginal polity and in what ways have they succeeded? So broadly speaking, we found that inadequate representation of Aboriginal aspirations has made achieving those aspirations more difficult. So if we consider over our 11 case studies, starting with the Larrakia petition that really put national land rights on the political agenda through to the Uluru Statement, how is it that these moments keep appearing, these moments of intervention coinciding with different anniversaries? How is it that Aboriginal political aspirations are cycled through on a fairly regular basis? without feeling like there is ever any progress or, or adequate response to those claims. And so our suggestion here is that one issue is the way the media reports on the aspirations. So I'm just going to walk through very briefly some of our key findings. The predominant finding refers to the narrative, so I'll spend a little bit more time talking about those. We found over the 45 years and these 11 case studies, you would expect that over the 45 years there will be a, there will be a shift and that there will be an improvement in reportage. So that wasn't the case. The media speaks to a wide audience and adopts a white standpoint. The Aboriginal polity has largely been ignored or misunderstood by mainstream media. Uh, Negative discourses about Aboriginal behaviour are repeated over the time period. There's no clear progress towards better reporting of Aboriginal agency over the 45 years. There are three clear narratives that emerge in fact, four that I'll elaborate in a moment. And we refer to these narratives as white mastery, irreconciliation, subordination and um, treaty or sovereignty narratives. And another observation, a finding, is that the Aboriginal polity has increased its engagement with the media. So over the 45 years, we found none of the 90 articles that we looked at were authored by an Aboriginal journalist. There were a few opinion pieces, um, certainly in the last... 20 years of um, Aboriginal journalists covering Aboriginal stories we found, to our knowledge, none, no coverage. Now, let me just elaborate these three narratives just um, briefly. When we refer to white mastery, the narrative there is, and pardon the crudeness of this account, it's a story from a white perspective that says, We won, you lost. That is the end of the story. There is no more negotiation to take place. The second is irreconciliation. This is a narrative that comes from perhaps the of Fairfax masthead, and it really flags a positive account of Aboriginal aspirations but there is no resolution of how um, Aboriginal worlds will be addressed. So there are positive stories about Aboriginal lives, but there is no sense of progressing Aboriginal political aspirations. Um, The third is a subordination narrative. This subordination narrative really emerges in the 2000s. It's a story that Aboriginal aspirations can exist and can be tolerated so long as they uh, flag a subordination to the sovereignty of the state. And so a subordination narrative was also apparent in the Uluru Statement, for example, And the final, the sovereignty nationhood narrative, you can see that appears once. And ironically, that sovereignty or nationhood narrative came about in 1979, and it was in response to the media coverage of the Aboriginal Treaty Committee. And the Aboriginal Treaty Committee was a group of concerned European Australians who were advocating Aboriginal rights. And so that is the only example where we see the media adequately reporting on... Aboriginal political aspirations and sovereignty and nationhood. So I'm just looking at a, a bit of a quick trip through, these, um, through the findings and those narratives uh, to give you a bit of a taster for what, what we'll be discussing over the next four weeks. You can see here that the next steps, indeed this seminar series is part of the next steps. We've, we've identified that there is more work to be done uh, amongst media professionals to improve their practices for Aboriginal communities to test media truth-telling and for others seeking to understand how Aboriginal desires have been responded to by the media. Thank you.
2: Oh, thank you, Heidi. That's a lot of really, really important issues that need to be discussed, not just in this forum, but I think much more widely, university, society, everywhere. And to start the process, maybe Stan, could you respond to those points that Heidi raised in her summary of that work? I think there's an issue here regarding the way in which media is controlled either by, say, a fairly conservative government or by corporations and how one can actually make change within that format, which is quite restrictive. And it would be very interesting to hear your thoughts on that.
3: Yeah, thank you, Devolinda. Thank you so much for that, Heidi, as well. And I want to pay my respects to the Gadigal people as well, on whose land we are meeting, and all Eora people, whose land I, I live on in Sydney. I think, first of all, when you approach something like this, it's always useful to try to define your terms. When we're talking about Aboriginal aspirations, and we can be guilty sometimes of assuming a homogeneity or a uniformity to Aboriginal aspirations, when in fact, Aboriginal peoples and Aboriginal political aspirations run the full gamut from disengaged, apathetic to very engaged and forward-leaning and wanting to advocate for particular change. So I think that's also part of some of the difficulties with the media is even representing what is a diversity of Indigenous viewpoints and a diversity of Indigenous peoples. And then to define the media, in this case, as Heidi pointed out, you focus very much on on print media and that allowed for a uniform methodology and being able to apply that lens to these stories and try to track that over a period of time I think that was that was really useful. And when we talk about media of course it's a much more cluttered and congested landscape today and uh, social media has certainly changed the nature of the flow of information and put the capacity to engage in that space into the hands of people through Facebook and Twitter and and other ways of being able to engage directly and bypassing the more standard conservative legacy media. And then, of course, there is the media's role itself. And, you know, the assumption that the media is, is failing Aboriginal aspirations assumes that The media is there to represent Aboriginal aspirations or to advocate for Aboriginal aspirations, and that certainly hasn't been my experience. In fact, you could broaden that and say, you know, does the media advocate or is the media failing political aspirations of Australians in general? Um, And I think that's something to look at. Um, The media is really driven by two things. It's driven by crisis and it's driven by conflict. You know, you could be graduating... You know, 200 Indigenous students from university right now, today, and there may be an Aboriginal protest involving 50 people and the protest will be on television. So the media is driven to crisis. The media is driven to conflict. The media doesn't see its role um, in being there to advocate for, represent any political aspirations, let alone Aboriginal political aspirations. And then, of course, there is a diversity of Aboriginal political aspirations uh, as well to factor into that. Broadly, I would say you've been really correct in identifying where those broad themes are, and certainly irreconciliation, that idea that there may be a lip service to Mm. Aboriginal people's aspirations for self-determination, for more political representation, but a failure to actually achieve that, an understanding of Aboriginal suffering or Aboriginal injustice or disadvantage, but a failure to connect that to broader political aspirations. So I think that's that's an overwhelming trend. The white mastery narrative, again, that's really prevalent, I think, and it's, it's probably a reflection of a broader attitude you may find politically in Australia. And I think we saw that around Mabo, but we, we saw that a little bit with the Uluru Statement from the Heart, that there was a political decision made that Indigenous aspirations for greater representation within Australia's constitution was somehow an attack on Australian liberalism and Australian liberalism being defined as being something that is a British inheritance, that is a neutral political space that no other group can have rights that other people in the country can't have. It's a very narrow framing of liberalism. Um, It's a very misleading framing of liberalism. It is a white European triumphalist framing of liberalism, and in this case it was applied to knock the whole idea of Euler's statement and an Aboriginal voice of the Constitution off the agenda. So, look, I, I think you've really identified some of the the problems, the broad narratives, you've identified the areas where Aboriginal people's at political aspirations are frustrated by a media that doesn't see that as its role or is driven to crisis and conflict, is about creating more division than it is about actually illuminating issues and you've identified I think a real friction in how those aspirations can be better portrayed, how we can achieve uh, greater aspirations for political representation and justice with a media landscape that is still overwhelmingly as we saw with the Media Diversity Australia report just yesterday. Overwhelmingly white, European, Anglo and not particularly engaged with these issues or of a mind to be introspective about how they represent these issues.
2: That was really interesting. I mean, I just listening to both of you, it struck me that much of what you say is so relevant globally. You know, I come to this from the plight of indigenous people in India. And what strikes me is that the way in which media works in India is also extremely similar because the media landscape is similar. So you have government-owned media, which if the government is benign, may present some indigenous points of view. And the corporate media represents a kind of corporate point of view. And certainly in India, as in Australia, um, where there is a large amount of uh, land and especially resource extraction, indigenous points of view get completely obliterated, really, and not even elided, they get obliterated. What's often struck me, and we've talked about this uh, with Heidi often, is that there are global issues here. And, you know, we some ways need to build a kind of global movement, because our strength has to be in our our numbers and our solidarities and so on. And historically as well, I mean, if you look at the way in which the British took over land in India in the late 1790s, and you look at the Terran judgment, you're actually sort of amazed by the similarities in those processes. I mean, the colonial archives circulate, I mean, the British colonised India, they colonised Australia, various other places, and their archives of colonisation actually circulate in the colonies. And that's a really kind of important way of making those global connections. I would also be kind of interested in thinking about some of the questions first that we can go to, and then maybe I can ask a couple of questions to both uh, Heidi and, and Stan if there's time. So we've got quite a few questions. So this is a question for Stan. How can there be a change in expanding editorial viewpoints in all media? And a question which is related to it, I think, was a disparity of views identified between what, how the public media reports on Aboriginal issues compared to the
3: corporate media?
2: Stan, would you um, have a response to those two related questions?
3: Yeah, I'd probably answer the first one. Hardy might be better in terms of answering what the methodology was and how it was applied in this case to these stories in, in this report. But but in terms of how you bring about that change, well, part of it is is changing the nature of power structures, I think, of the media, as we saw with the Media Diversity Australia report, where every single news director, head of news at all of the the major networks in Australia are white Australian men. When you have a situation at the ABC, for instance, where the head of news is white, the supervising producers and executive producers of almost every single program are white, every foreign correspondent is white, the host of The Drum, of 7.30, of q Day of Insiders are white. You know, you could just go on and on and on. Um, there is clearly a failure there. And not to add about our, our public broadcaster as opposed to our commercial broadcasters, I mean, commercial broadcasters, it's their money. They, they can do what, what they like, I suppose. But in the public broadcaster, where you have a higher expectation that they would be open to that greater level of diversity and introspection about where they're failing and how they're failing, I think there's been a stubbornness to embrace any sort of reform or to introduce more diversity, particularly into the power structures. Um, they're 20, 30 years behind the rest of the world. You know, i work worked for... CNN for many years. And it was an extraordinarily diverse organisation, senior roles occupied by people from a whole range of different backgrounds. And we all brought that to the editorial process. We all brought our life experiences, we all brought our political opinions and attitudes, and it all went into the mix that it made for a more dynamic, a more vibrant, a more interesting editorial discussion that I think was reflected more broadly On the types of stories we did and and how we approach doing those stories. There is a uniformity here still driven by a European hegemony that dominates the editorial process. It dominates the editorial decision making, how stories are done, who does them, how they're represented. And I think particularly when you find with Indigenous stories and you're dealing with people who have had limited or no experience directly with Indigenous people who haven't really turned their minds to trying to understand the issues at play when you're reporting on Indigenous people in Australia, then clearly there is just not the depth of knowledge, understanding or commitment to improving or increasing that knowledge and understanding. And it leads to poorer coverage. That's what it leads to. It leads to less interesting coverage. Now, I think if I look at outside of the public broadcaster and commercial television in Australia, coverage of Indigenous issues is is non-existent. Um, It's driven purely by crisis or conflict. There'll be a a coverage on an Australia Day march or if there was a a Black Lives Matter protest, they'd be focusing on who got arrested or was there any violence or, you know, what laws were being broken rather than the substance of the issues that people are protesting about. Um, If you look at print, you know, I would say that the Australian, as a masthead, has probably engaged more significantly in this space, it's certainly devoted, in my sort of experience and, and anecdotally as a reader, devoted more column inches to the coverage of Indigenous issues. I think it's probably elevated the coverage of Indigenous policy to a level that it approaches the coverage of other aspects of, of government policy. But there is undoubtedly, at a place like the Australian a particular framework and the framework is that you know anything that sits outside of what they see as being Australian liberal democratic values as they define them is seen as being something that is illegitimate so while there may be broad coverage it doesn't necessarily lead to more illumination it may in fact lead to hardening attitudes or to reinforcing stereotype or to a sense that aboriginal aspirations political aspirations for things like sovereignty, um, recognition, are seen as being illegitimate or even hostile to Australian liberal democracy. So it's it's very difficult. It's difficult philosophically. It's difficult editorially. It's difficult in terms of, of resources. It's very difficult in terms of personnel to try to get coverage of something with any depth or meaning, particularly an issue that presents an existential crisis to Australia and Australia's sense of legitimacy, an issue that is so important, it is very difficult to get depth to that coverage when the people who are driving that coverage have so little experience or inclination or a worldview that sees Aboriginal people and Aboriginal aspirations as being either illegitimate or hostile or sitting outside the broad scope of what they see as being representing Australia and Australian values.
2: Thanks, Dan. That's very useful. Heidi, I think there's a question here, which is quite interesting. The question is, could you speak to the definition of media or different modes of media circulation? In particular, do you have a sense of how the diaspora media, ethnic media has reported on Aboriginal political aspirations over time and how the international media has reported these aspirations and how do they compare? That's a good question.
0: I think someone should um, dedicate their PhD to that project. (laughs) Yes,
2: I thought that was a PhD topic there.
0: (laughs) What I can say, just without sort of um, getting too off topic, for this work, we confined our um, study, so those 10 articles per case study, to print media and in Australia. And what we did find is that Outside of those 10 mainstream print media articles, that the coverage in, say, the Kauri Mail, this is, you know, Aboriginal community controlled fortnightly paper, the ABC, even um, Indigenous X and other uh, social media forums, the coverage of issues was really different to how those same stories were reported on in the mainstream media. The narratives we identified in the mainstream media are picked up in very different ways outside of the mainstream print news media. And even the ABC coverage on the ABC, ABC online, really different. Well, I can't comment a lot about ethnic media or international media, but I really think it would be make for a fascinating study. Looking at these particular case studies, it was um, Tribune Other sources, even the Northern Territory News, Illawarra News, some other, um, Canberra Times, um, they actually even at at times had really different coverage to what we saw in the Herald um, and the Murdoch papers like the Australian and the Daily Telegraph, you know, Financial Review, other papers. But I think it would make a, somebody somebody should do that work.
2: Now, just a a small point is I can actually literally say that having followed the media in India, the only time I've really seen Aboriginal aspirations come to the fore is uh, with the Adani case. Uh, And that's because Adani is an Indian corporation. So all of a sudden there's a certain amount of interest in what's happening and what's going on and so on. But beyond that, no, because media is actually about power. You know, who has the power to listen? Listen as in listen to make a difference, not just listen just because somebody's talking. Okay, more questions maybe Stan, you can go first. I read yesterday uh, regarding poor media employment representation or diversity compared to white Anglo-Celtic domination, that we hire who applies. That is suggesting that, say, Aboriginal people are not applying for media jobs.
3: That's probably a reflection of how welcome people of diverse backgrounds, and not just talking about Indigenous people, that people of diverse backgrounds may feel that they may feel in applying for these positions that, you know, they're unlikely to be successful or they're likely to go into an environment that they may find unwelcoming or even hostile. So that may be a factor. There may be, um, you know, a deterrence right at the start from people who just simply don't want to engage with that. It's a lazy argument because if you want to find people, if you want to encourage people to apply, then you will. It's a self-perpetuating thing, in Australia, white news bosses, executives are interviewing white candidates and appointing white candidates. Uh, beyond that, there has been a failure to nurture and develop the careers of people of a non-white background. You know, I've worked for—I first worked for the ABC more than thirty years ago. I was fortunate, I think, that um, I came into the organisation outside of what was seen as an Aboriginal identified trainee program. I'd already studied and I'd already um, completed a a journalism cadetship in a commercial media, first at the Canberra Times and later at Macquarie Radio. So I came into the ABC having earned my stripes, if you like. And I saw other Indigenous people who came into the organisation through identified Aboriginal traineeship programs or cadetship programs. And there was no commitment beyond ticking the box and getting those, those numbers. There was no commitment um, to developing their careers in the same way the careers of their contemporaries, their peers. And as a result, young Aboriginal um, potential journalists clearly grew frustrated and drifted away from the profession. Some of them very notable in other walks of life today, in politics and also in um, in acting, because they, they chose to pursue other careers because they didn't see that they were going to get the career development and opportunities in journalism. So the ABC, as an example, has been bringing Indigenous people into the organisation for over 30 years. And it was only about 18 months ago, two years ago, that the first Indigenous person at the ABC, Bridget Brennan, um, was appointed as a foreign correspondent. I'd been a foreign correspondent for the Seven Network 20 years before that. And I chose to leave the ABC and pursue a career elsewhere. I went to work for CNN, and again, a diverse organisation where what I was and my particular identity or racial or ethnic background was not going to be an impediment to my career success. It was driven by by other factors, um, your competence, your excellence, you know, and so on. So in in terms of encouraging people into the organisation and changing, until there is a real commitment and structural change, until the people making the decisions are not going to be looking in the mirror when they hire someone, are not going to be looking for people who reflect who they are or reflect their worldview, there is not going to be change and we'll have the lazy excuses that they just don't apply or they're not interested in these careers or when, in fact, um, people often feel as if they're not going to be welcome or they're not going to have the, the type of career advancement that they may find. In, in other walks of life. So we're 20 or 30 years behind where the rest of the world is on this. And it's um it's an inexcusable situation.
2: I agree. I think we have time for just one more question. And this one, I will give first to Heidi. Though Stan, please come in. Um, when it, if you feel you have something to add. Uh, it says, is the critical debate whether Indigenous sovereignty deserves recognition versus the post-race idea that all Australian citizens are equal and we should be blind.
0: I'll pick that question or the sort of identification of attention, if you like, in relation to the the media coverage of the Uluru Statement from the Hap. So it, it's a chapter. So I'm just looking at a couple of pages of, from the study. And again, keeping in mind that the purpose of this work is to think about how the media covered this event, how the media covered this as one example of Aboriginal political aspirations. Before the Uluru Statement from the Heart was read out, it was delivered to the people. So all of the other case studies we've looked at, many of them, petitions and um, other moments, are delivered to politicians. So the Larrake petition was to the Crown, to um, the Princess, the Uluru Statement was delivered to the people, which is a really significant shift in political strategy. Before the statement was read to the people, the Australians' Greg Sheridan, he sounded a note of caution. He's already anticipating that Aboriginal people will put forward proposals for constitutional recognition that will have no chance of success and therefore, for practical reasons, appear doomed. And then he goes on to say that constitutional recognition is a, quote, bad in principle because it would create two classes of citizens. He goes on to rail against the failings of liberalism to counter the campaign of identity politics. So this is the, this is an ideological position, if you like, that the Australian fairly relentlessly pursues. And Aboriginal affairs is a real battleground for this issue to play out. That's sort of what that question is going to. But moving on, and this is a bit truncated. When the Uluru statement was read to the people, in a way, I would argue, it second-guessed and navigated around that kind of critique that the Australian already has got fired up in the cannon to roll out. And what the Uluru Statement from the Heart did was it avoided all of the language about recognition. It spoke about the recognition of Aboriginal sovereignty as being complementary to or side by side the sovereignty of the state. So it already positions those Aboriginal aspirations, as are contained in that statement, as subordinate or at the least running parallel to the sovereignty of the state. So I would argue that there was some absolute political strategy genius in how the Uluru Statement was framed, the kind of political aspirations, how they were communicated to the public and how they were shaped and framed. The other thing I want to encourage us to think about is that the convention was held in a locale that was relatively isolatable and so journalists were there reporting from within Aboriginal worlds so the journalists possibly for the first time that I can think of other than say being at the New South Wales Aboriginal Rugby League knockout were part of Aboriginal worlds and therefore were imagining a world even just for a few days that were from an Aboriginal standpoint and I think the reporting of the Uluru Statement from the heart from the journalists who were there at that camp is really different because of that and I think there was also some really careful staging around the event so for example it coincided with the anniversary of the 1967 referendum it was delivered with enormous ceremony so there was a really careful orchestrating of that political aspiration and that as a political moment that forced a different kind of reporting so um, to go to, to that tension I think what we also saw Um, and this is one of our findings from the study, is that there is also really careful engagement by you know Aboriginal political actors to deal with the media with the full knowledge of the limitations of how the media reports Aboriginal political aspirations.
3: And and if if I could just add to what Heidi said there, I I agree with her, there was a, a strategic approach to trying to address these issues in a way that tried to negate that reporting that views these things as being immediately somehow illegitimate or outside of Australian liberalism. And it still failed. It still met resistance at the media and the political level. In retrospect, you may argue that it's actually done some damage because in trying to reach that compromise, in trying to negate those issues, the bar has been lowered even further. You know, where, where left is there for Indigenous people to compromise when and inherently compromised um, statement, a statement that was designed to try to speak directly to the people and avoid this type of ideological cul-de-sac has still failed. And I think it goes to something that probably encapsulates both the media and our politics. It's not so much a failure of the media to represent Aboriginal political aspirations. It is a failure of, of Australia and the idea of Australia and what, how Australia views political liberalism, and that it is a, a white mastery liberalism, it is a European triumphalist liberalism. The idea that you can declare that anything that establishes two categories of Australians is just unbelievably blind to the history of this country, where there have always been subcategories of Australians, that Indigenous people's history is being excluded uh, and segregated and having a much more contingent idea of citizenship than other Australians. It's also blind to the fact that we now have, within our legal and political structures, via the Mabo case, native title, a range of other policy areas, an acknowledgement that there are enduring rights that Indigenous people have that sit within our political liberalism. And the sky hasn't fallen. In fact, you could argue that, you know, that for all those innovations that They've probably failed Aboriginal people more than they've actually diminished the Liberal state. So it's, it's a failure of imagination. It's a failure of the potential of Australian liberalism. It's a, it's a one-size-fits-all liberalism that does not work with a pluralistic world and a world in which people of different backgrounds are making ethical claims on the state that should be compatible with our liberalism. And once again, it sends Aboriginal people back to the drawing board to come back with another compromise as the process is underway now in the face of this obstinate refusal to accept Aboriginal claims for rightful political representation and recognition, to accept those claims as being somehow consistent with Australian liberalism. It's a failure of liberalism and a failure of imagination at a national level. And that I think we see reflected in this media coverage that ultimately fails to illuminate or to enlarge the conversation that we have around getting beyond this ideological roadblock
2: thank you so much i think we've almost finished i mean and i mean for me to i'm not going to sum up any of these really complex and fascinating arguments that both Heidi and have put forward, except to say that in that last bit where both of you touched on this, there is here a real distance between worldviews. View- world I mean, the idea of post Enlightenment philosophy that there is one possible way in which the world can function, which is the kind of European philosophical way, and that we have nothing to learn from other life worlds, other knowledges, in the face of massive climate change, in the face of pandemics, in the face of the various failures of capitalism, I think that in itself is absolutely just dumbfounding. Um, The refusal to acknowledge that huge portions of the globe may have other ways of living, not perfect ways of living, not uh, ways of living or life worlds that can't be criticized, but different ways of thinking about society themselves, the world, the environment.
3: Which, which, so. which De, De, Devlina, if, if, if I could just come in there, you're making a really good point. Um, these people who are meant to be the great defenders of liberalism are actually failing their own creed. Exactly. Because this, this idea that, that political liberalism ended with John Stuart Mill and John Locke, that it ended in 17th, 18th century Enlightenment thinkers, is blind to all of the innovative work around political liberalism from 20th century thinkers like John Rawls and others. Um, Will Kimlicker and others, who've enlarged the idea of what political liberalism is. So it's a failure of their own creed to the detriment of us, and I would also argue to the detriment of the country.
2: The detriment, I mean, it's one of the things that Franz Fanon once said, is that colonialism makes both sides of the equation sick. Hmm. I think that is really true, and maybe that's a bit of a depressing, but a good way to end this with my absolutely sincere thanks to the both of you.
3: I just want to say thank you to... Heidi and others who worked on on the report. Um, It's really important work and thank you to UTS for organising this week. It's an important conversation to have and uh, and thanks for inviting me.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan.
1: You've been listening to an edited version of Black Stories Matter, a four-part series from the Indigenous Land and Justice Research Hub, Centre for the Advancement of Indigenous Knowledge and the Faculty of Arts and Social Science at UTS. And the speakers were Professor Stan Grant, Professor Heidi Norman and Professor Delina Gush. And thank you to Impact Studios for their production, work and sharing of the audio. And thank you to listening to Fall for State. This edition was recorded at the studios of Turrisia and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fall for State is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. And make sure you subscribe to 4 for State on your favourite podcasting app. And we'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is for State AU. My name is Anthony Dockwell. Thanks for listening.